This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. It really is good to be back. I've missed you all. Um, we are picking back up in our sermon series in Micah. Uh, as I had visiting pastors in, they, they kind of uh, preached on, the, on, on topics that they had felt uh, most comfortable. Uh, but we're continuing in Micah chapter 4 today. We've looked at chapters 1, 2, and 3, or maybe just sections of them. And we're going to be in 4. And I'm wondering, as we head into this, if you've ever felt that tug towards weariness. Uh, weariness at any given fight. Uh, I think this has honestly become most clear for me. Uh, as I try to raise my three-year-old, there is a perseverance and determination uh, that I don't know I often have. <laughs> uh, there, there can be a weariness that sets in. However, that's uh, mostly a, a joyous sort of weariness as we know that there's a, a light coming as maturity grows. Uh, but what about other kinds of weariness? One where we're not sure where it's going to come from. Whether it's in the face of consistent business downturn or a diagnosis that radically changes future plans. At first, we might start with an abundance of energy, but weariness might set in. There is a weariness also in family strife, the consequences of old sins that continue to pay dividends over and over and over again. We can become weary in the face of these things. And in these times, I think we're often told to hold on to God's promises. You'll hear people say that all the time, just hold on to God's promises. He is good. And I, I don't know if you've ever been in those moments, but that's kind of hard to receive right then, isn't it? It's hard to hold on to promises that feel so distant. But what is it about God's promises that allow us to persevere? You see, in Micah thus far, if you've remembered, I'm going to run back through really quick, um, all they've received so far is judgment. Things look pretty bleak. They're feeling pretty weary. Uh, a little bit of historical background, right? You've got the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel, and the northern kingdom has just been whooped up on by the Assyrians, and they're gone. So it's like they're, even though they didn't get along super well, the southern kingdom's kind of looking at their siblings and going like, uh-oh. Now, Sennacherib's army is besieging Jerusalem, and Micah is there proclaiming, this is the judgment of the Lord. Things are awfully bleak. And Micah gives lots of reasons for the judgment. Uh, he says that there were people that took advantage of the situation to, to, to in, um, not, not just to their, their benefit, but actually to the extortion of their brothers and sisters. Uh, they would rob land um, um, un unwisely, unethically uh, from, from, their, from their peers. And they're, they're receiving judgment from God from this. That was in chapter one, we kind of got those hints. In chapter two, uh, Micah kind of doubles down and he says, man, in your prosperity, Jerusalem, when you've gained the wealth, you thought to yourselves, God must be on my side, when that couldn't be further from the truth. God's actually saying, yes, you may have gained wealth, but I am not on your side. In chapter 3, he continues this, talking about how they have syncretized their religion, just continuing to hammer into these people that God's judgment is bearing down on them. And yet, in chapter 4, they're going to start receiving promises, the ways that God is for them. 
You see, these are the people who call themselves God's children, but they had not acted like it. Um, and in that, that situation of the war and taking advantage of their brothers and sisters, they had sinned against not only um, their, their countrymen, but also their God. And Micah's job was to proclaim that that judgment was coming. However, Micah's not just there to proclaim woe and doom. He's there to encourage people to repent. Those who have been perpetuators of injustice are intended to hear these woes and hear the promises and understand that they can still cling to them if they say, Lord, I've done wrong. For those that have been oppressed by injustice, they're to hear those promises and say, God is still for me. He hasn't forgotten me in my weariness. And these sorts of promises that we're going to read about today are intended to sustain us even today. When we're in the midst of those business downturns and familial strife, difficult diagnoses. Whether it's the sin of others against us or just the general sin of the world, that something cataclysmic has come into our lives and we are weary, we are intended to read these promises and see God sustaining us. So as we look at these promises today, we're going to look at it in three parts. This promise comes with a place, a people, and a king. Those are going to be our three points today, a place, a people, and a king. If you would, please stand out of reverence for God's word, which holds his promises to his people. This comes from Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its own God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever." In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And to you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and shall dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. This ends the reading of God's word, which is his promises to his people. May he establish these promises even more surely in our hearts today for you and for me. Please be seated. So I said that we're going to look at these promises um, in order to figure out how to sustain us in bleak and weary times, how we are to face weariness by looking at God's promises. And then we're going to look at, at it in three ways, a place, a people, and a king. So first, a place. 
Have you ever felt out of place? Like, I think we've all felt this way. Um, probably, maybe most acutely in high school. I feel like everybody in middle school and high school has these uh, experiences where they're like, wow, I really don't fit in with these people. But we also have them continuing throughout our life, in our families, in our workplace environment, um, in new extended families as we, as we marry and people, people come in and, and we're like, I don't know if I fit within these bodies of people. And even in welcoming a new baby. I can remember when Joaquin was born and we came home from the hospital. Uh, there was this kind of existential dread that I was not quite prepared for of, he doesn't really need me. His mother feeds him. I mean, of course I help change the diapers and really I'm caring for the mom. But I thought like fatherhood was gonna be something a little bit different. <laughs> but in those first few weeks, it's like, I don't know if I'm needed in this relationship, but do I, is there a place for me here? Eventually, my place was found and I continue to find it as he grows and matures. But I'm wondering about those times where we feel like we don't have a place. And instead of re um, receiving little bits of encouraging news about what our place is going to look like eventually, we keep receiving little bits of news about how we will never fit in this place. Never fit in this family. Never fit at this workplace. Never fit to what we're called. I believe Micah's audience felt this way. You can imagine Israel's history Right, it's a long one. God had made lots of promises to them. Just like we believe that God makes promises that we're going to fit in somewhere, that we have a calling uh, that's, that's going to fit us just right. Israel believed the same thing, and they said it was the promised land. And when they finally get there the first time, they actually are too afraid to enter, and then they try to enter by their own plans, and if you, if you know their history, it just it goes poorly for them. And so they have to wander around the desert for 40 years. And then when they finally get in the land, they actually can't take it over on their own because they kind of get lazy and complacent. They fail to be who they were supposed to be. And then time and time again, they receive judges and they receive prophets that tell them, you aren't who you're supposed to be. You don't belong here. And so it is with Micah's audience. They're here hearing the same thing. The northern and southern kingdom have divided. The northerns have been carried away and dispersed. They've got an army encamped around their city, and they're saying, we don't fit in. We couldn't be who we were supposed to be. You see, we want desperately to believe that God's promises make a place for us. And when we start to doubt that, we really start to doubt God, don't we? When we start to experience that we don't fit in, all of God's promises seem easy to gloss over. Like I'm not really sure that they're true. But even in the midst of this experience of Micah's audience, God returns once again and declares the same similar promises that he said elsewhere. He declares them over again in verses one through five. It shall come to pass in the latter days. It's not soon, it's the latter days. But it shall come to pass in the latter days that there will be a space. That there will be a land. There will be a kingdom where everyone has a place. Everyone's gifts are cherished. The mountain of the Lord, referring to Jerusalem, will be established and people shall flow to it. Kind of using the imagery of a river, right? But I've never seen a river flow towards a mountain. 
You know, usually the mountains are up, gravity wins, the water goes that way, you know? But this mountain is so attractive that the peoples of the earth are drawn to Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord himself is there. There's something about this place where they say, there's no more war. I no longer have to defend my own place. In fact, there's abundance. There's a vine and a fig tree, and every man has his own one. And you got to think, if you're faced, if you're besieged by an army, you're not exactly thinking about the luxuries of life, wine and, and figs, you know? Grapes and figs. You're probably thinking more about bread. And yet here in the midst of these bleak experiences for Micah's people, God says, I'm still keeping these promises. There will be a place here. And it will be a place of abundance. A place where you belong. A place where every person that's a part of my kingdom has a job to do and it is dignified. A place that the world looks at and says, it's beautiful. I want to be a part of that. This promise is enticing because there's room for everyone. Everyone is seen. In this place, every single person is desired. In this place, every single person has their own place in their own gifts. In this place, every single person has a part to play, and they're celebrated accordingly. In this place, no one has all the land, while some have a few. And if you remember, that's the case in, in Micah's uh, situation. In this place, the word of the Lord adjudicates, and all wrongs will be righted. Everything that isn't seen by the law, and you can't know without a questionable doubt, the Lord knows without a questionable doubt. In this place, there was a return to what once was, a right relationship of man to God, man to creation, and man to himself. This promised place echoes into our hearts is because it's what we were made for. It's what we so desperately want. Now, it's all fine and good to hear about this place again. So it's like God almost starts this promise, right? He's like, man, you guys are going to be judged. You guys are going to be taken out to Babylon. Uh, And then there you're going to find rescue. Um, But who knows if you're going to see it? (laughs) Uh, This is in the latter days. And so I think the question becomes, who's going to be in this place? Who is the us? Who is this promised place Four, and this is our second point, God promises a people. You see, we as a people have experienced rejection and being on the outside and not having a place time and time again, who have been left out and abandoned, who face betrayals and marital strife. Are we sure that it is us that's included? What about those of us who have oppressed? Those of us that have acted wickedly? Those of us who are pretty sure our weariness is well-deserved? Can this place be for us too? I'd like you to look at the kind of people that are gathered into this place because I think that we would assume that if this is the best place in the world and that everyone in the world wants to be there, that the tryouts would be unbelievably intense. You would have to be the best of the best, the perfected and the fit, the wealthy and successful. We would assume that in this space, which God promises is so good that God's like, I've got my best people there. But verses six and seven say that God gathers the lame, 
the ones who were cast off. The reality is that the people that fill this space are even broken by God himself in verse 6. He can afflict them. And I think if you were here last week with Matt, he talked about Job. And Job, you get to see a little story of that. God himself afflicts people. The ones who are part of this place aren't the perfect, aren't the ones who have never sinned, aren't the ones who have their entire lives together and have the perfect Instagram stories. They're the permanently scarred, the ones always on the out, the ones with dark secrets that can be brought in the light. If you feel that you are isolated and alone and that you have infirmities that you just can't quite shake, you are the person that the Lord longs to gather. When we're facing our challenges and obstacles and the weight of our own sin, we often feel um, that it must mean that God is afflicting us uh, for something that we've done wrong. And if we've ever been afflicted for something that we've done wrong, we kind of understand that people want their distance, right? And this makes uh, some sort of sense. I mean, Jesus can recognize uh, the same thing. The people who were successful in Jesus' day, he could say they, they didn't need a physician. They didn't know that they were sick. If they thought that they were righteous, they don't need me. I came for the sick. I came for the people who know that they don't have what it takes. And Jesus is not far off. Jesus runs towards us. Even in the midst of our deepest, darkest sins. You might say that Micah is preaching to a people that are in the midst of their deepest and darkest sins. And God comes to them. And yeah, he says, you are sinning. Repent. The reason uh, that Jesus is not far off, um, there's this verse in Hebrews, I don't know if you guys have heard it, it says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. And one writer speaking about this says that Jesus knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. And as he continues speaking about this verse, he highlights that in our experience of suffering, we often feel that that is when God must be most furthest off because God wouldn't have anything to do with this. But God himself had everything to do with that. He came to suffer and to die. This, this author can continue. You have a friend that can never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back because his heart is too bound up with yours. He knows it intimately. In fact, as one who's never sinned, he knows it more acutely than you. Never deserving any of it. He went there for you. God promises a place for us, but he also promises a people. 
Uh, and these people have a peculiar experience of suffering, weariness, and brokenness. And so in the midst of your suffering and brokenness, I hope what you're hearing is that that place is still for you and you are still God's people. Your job is to cling to him over and over again. But God not only prop- promises these things, uh, in order to make these promises come about, uh, he's going to promise a ruler. And we kind of understand this. Great movements and people have always had great leaders. Even in a nation such as ours that values independence so strongly is heavily dependent upon its leaders, especially in history. But as a human race, our leaders tend to be very finicky. The Pandora and Panama Papers have revealed that on the whole and given the chance, Many leaders around the world opt to utilize tax havens and loopholes to amass and protect their own wealth and their own inheritances. Leaders who decry corruption don't often do everything that they can to stop it. Now, regardless of whether laws will change to close some of these loopholes, I think the wealthy and the powerful always tend to find ways to accomplish what they want. It was true in Micah's day, and it's true today. And as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. But the Bible describes a different kind of ruler, a different kind of wealth and power, one that doesn't look out for his own stuff, but actually provides an inheritance by giving absolutely everything away, including his own life. Now, for Micah's audience, this ruler would be described of a different order of a more ancient order, a more ancient dominion. He's like, yeah, you know the rulers of your day? You know how they've all kind of failed you? Even the best king you've ever had, King David, not perfect, failed you in many, many ways, especially at the end of his life. This king that's coming, he's not even an order of that magnitude. It is so much greater. But Micah doesn't shy away from the reality that for this king to come, (laughs) the judgment's still coming. Having Sennacherib's armies press in against their walls, I can imagine the people hearing this being like, a king is coming. We're going to be delivered. At the movie perfect moment, when the need is most dire, he's going to show up and rescue us. And Micah's like, actually, they're going to win. Well, it's not them. The the Babylonians uh, come after and, and finish the job. Um, but he's like, Babylon's actually going to come first. They're, they're going to beat you down for a little while, and then they're going to leave. Um, and the Babylonians are going to come, and they're going to carry you away to a land that's not your own out of the city and tear down the city brick by brick. And there, more desperate than you could have imagined, is where a king will come. Now, it's funny, uh, Micah's people didn't experience this. Uh, Even in the subsequent 400 years, they they didn't experience anything like this. By the time that Jesus came around, right, they were still waiting for this king. A contemporary of Micah, somebody who was prophesying at the same time was Isaiah, he would have this to say about this king. Just, uh, I'm going to quote a few different prophets, and my, my purpose for this is, is for you guys to understand how desperately the people of Micah's day understood that they wanted this king here how badly they knew they needed it. So Isaiah would say this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Micah in chapter 5 will continue to say this about the ruler. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, from ancient of days. And in Zechariah, which will come after they return from the Babylonians, he'll say this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All of these guys are building up this messianic expectation is what we call it sometimes in theological terms, but this, this kingly expectation that they knew they needed deliverance in order to have the place and be the people, they needed a better ruler. And so many hundreds of years later, an angel would show up to a teenage girl and this angel Gabriel would say, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, you have found favor. You will conceive and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, and he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Can you feel the expectation? the waiting. We're finally going to have a place and a people. And when Jesus walked on this earth, there was. He ate food with his friends. All in his presence felt welcomed. Small children, tax collectors, sinners, even Pharisees like Nicodemus. You guys remember the story of Mary who spilled out the ointment over his feet and then wiped it with her hair. And the people around the table said, you don't belong here. And I bet you she herself knew there's no place for me here. And the king of the universe saw her, made space for her, said, you are mine, woman of disrepute. For you I came. People questioned her motives, even her sense, but the king saw her. The king made a place for her. And he defended her even as she herself believed herself to be the most unlikely person to be worthy of the king's attention. Now, Jesus healed plenty of other people, defended and spoke for them. He healed the lame, the blind, the sick, and the diseased. He gathered them together into this ragtag band. These people with bleak hope met their king. And you know, that sounds really great in the New Testament. I really wish Jesus could be here now. What happened to his promises? <laughs> Why were the disciples hiding and running away? Because this king was supposed to reign forever. He wasn't supposed to be crucified on a cross. What was he about? A different kind of ruling, a different kind of wealth, and a different kind of power. Now, when Jesus left... <clears throat> After he resurrected, um, and then he ascended into heaven, uh, he gave us his Holy Spirit. And as he taught about what the Holy Spirit was going to do, he said, there are many more people, many more lame, many more permanently scarred people that I have to bring into my kingdom. 
and my bride is going to do it. Jesus describes the church as his bride, and he said that in this body, um, in the church, that there was going to be room for everyone, that in his church, there was going to be little inbreakings of the kingdom, that in his church, people would be seen no matter their socioeconomic status, no matter their background, no matter how permanently scarred they were or how broken they were, that there was a place for them, that their gifts would be seen and cherished that they would start to experience not only the place, but what it's like to be a people with a ruler inside the church. And you might be thinking, really? <laughs> I've, I've been in churches. You might be looking at me and being like, Zach, I've been in your church <laughs> for a little while. And that's not what I feel. I actually still feel like I don't belong, that I'm missed, that I don't have a place and that I wouldn't be welcome. I still feel like I'm fighting my wounds and hurts linger. I still fight my depression and doctors still can't tell me what's wrong with my body. It doesn't feel like the king is here. And the answer is, is that we're still waiting. The promise isn't yet fulfilled and we're forever on Christmas Eve waiting Christmas. <laughs> Not forever. The day will come, but it feels like it's forever. It feels like, you know, kids at Christmas Eve, they're just like so excited. They almost can't sleep. They're like, I'm going to stay up all night, you know, and they're like jumping up and down because they're so excited for the next day to come. And we are so excited, just like Micah's audience, waiting for the king to come in his fullness. And we've already experienced these foretastes now, and we have the promises confirmed time and time again, but we want that day to be here when all things are made new, when our bodies are transformed, when every tear is wiped away and there are no more hurts and pains. And do we know why this will happen, why we can be so sure that we can trust in these promises? And it's because this king is unlike any other king we've ever seen. Just in the small example of how he doesn't amass things for his own wealth, this king gives his very own life. This king died a shameful death. Contrary to everything that we consider wise in this good world, this king that, that created everything was put to death by his own creation who could speak things into existence. And this king was able to create that which no king has ever been able to create since Adam and Eve first disobeyed God. This king was able to create a place. And this king was able to create a people because this king was able to descend and bear the depths of their sin upon himself and say, they are mine. They are my people. This is my kingdom. By my blood, I paid for it. By my blood, I ransomed them. And by my unjust death, I bring these unjust and broken people back to life. Jesus could say it is finished because his work was done. And when he comes back in fullness, scripture describes it as every knee bowing, all rivers pouring towards him, the people finally seeing and going, surely that 
is goodness and mercy. That is love incarnate. That is my God and my King. He's made a place for me. He sees me where I am, makes me a part of his people, and I live because he lives. Now, Jesus lives. And part of the way that we experience this is not only the preaching of his word, as we hear him declare things to us, but he's also in his church said that we should keep doing this sacrament time and time again. And part of the reason is why, here's why. Uh, We believe in our theology that what happens at this table is not that Jesus descends and that he's re-crucified. It's not that he descends into here and it feeds us, but actually that he brings us up in the spirit to that place where we are all seen and all numbered. And he hands us the bread as he saw and numbered his disciples and said, take this bread. It is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he carries us up into heaven and he says, I see you and I wanna feed you at my table. This is the blood of the new covenant which has ransomed you and all of my people throughout all of time and made this place. It is shed for you, take and drink. Brothers and sisters, this is a tangible sign of God's promises to his people. We not only hear them declared to us, we not only sing about his promises and how good they are, we also get to taste it because God created us in bodies and he's going to resurrect our bodies And he's like, eating food is good. Jesus really loved eating food with his disciples. (laughs) He's going to love eating food with you. And he does it even now. And this table is for those who hear these words and who are cut to the heart and know that they are not the people that they should be. That know that Jesus is the only answer. But in who in every moment cast themselves upon this king. Throw themselves down at their feet and say, Lord, by your mercy those who try to live their lives in subjection to his rule even now, and to those who have been united to him in baptism. For those who aren't sure where they stand in relation to this king, who aren't sure that he actually created this place or actually sees you or is who he says he is, I'd ask you to refrain from partaking in this meal. Reflect on the promises Reflect on the judgments and the challenges. Reflect on his faithfulness throughout all time. And come another day. Um, In a moment, I'm going to pray, and we'll come down the center aisle. There's a diagram uh, that we have up here, and we'll go to the two stations over here on my right and left. uh, And then you can walk back to your seats, and there's trash cans there to throw stuff away. We have a gluten-free option. Please just notify your server uh, if that's what you require. Um, And then we also have wine and grape juice. The grape juice is clear and the wine is red. Please take according to your conscience. Uh, If you would, please pray with me. Jesus, you not only give us word promises, but you give us food promises. Father, I ask that these common things, these little pieces of bread and wine, let them by the power of your spirit 
become a tasteable promise of your goodness to us. In fact, Lord, by the power of your spirit, allow us to participate in this meal, recognizing that you are welcoming us to your table, that you've set a place for us among your people, and you yourself serve us. I ask that we might know this in Jesus' name. Amen.